The following program is paid for and presented by Skybridge Media, LLC. Hi, I'm Gary Kaminsky. Welcome to Wall Street Week, the show of record for long-term investing. In the fall of 2008, Bank of America bought legendary investment bank Merrill Lynch. It was acquired on the catastrophic weekend that saw the demise of Lehman Brothers and the near collapse of AIG. And I'm Anthony Scaramucci. Today's guest is responsible for maintaining the Merrill Lynch culture within the large supermarket financial institution. His strategy is next. This show has never been solely about investments. We've talked about anything that affected people and their money. From Times Square in New York City, the new Wall Street Week. We're pleased to welcome John Thiel, head of Merrill Lynch Wealth Management. John, it's great to have you on the show because we want to talk about your background. So sure. where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Oak Park, Illinois in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Did you play sports there? I did. I played football and ran track. And so now you went to college where? I started out at a school called Grand Valley State. I played football my freshman year. Really uh, quickly realized the NFL wasn't in my future. <laughs> <laughs> what position? Gary and I re realized that in Pop Warner. I was actually. playing wide receiver. Receiver. I was living with my brother, paying rent, and I decided that I could be broke and warm. So I transferred to Florida State. <laughs> and I was right. You. Did you play football down in Florida That's State? That's a very different <coughs> league of football. Yeah, yeah, so no. Cool. So what did you study at Florida State? I was an accounting major. Accounting. The language of business, accounting. And talk about how you got to your current role at, at Merrill Lynch. So I started with Merrill Lynch in 1989 as a financial advisor, and I had been a CPA and was in the insurance business, so I had a broad financial services background, but I, I worked through that as, as an advisor. And what was your strategy? I mean, every FA has sort of a strategy, how they're gonna build their business. What was your strategy? So it's 1989, I'm an accountant, not a salesman. Now I had gotten sent to Dale Carnegie uh, for sales training in the insurance industry, so I, I, I figured that out a little bit. John, just for the benefit of our viewers, so when we mentioned Dale Carnegie, mm -hmm. really like a public speaking and sales course, a little Toastmasters in there where you got to get up once a week and speak uh, to your fellow classmates. So had, has Dale Carnegie and those sorts of courses helped you in your oh, business unbelievably career? unbelievably well. Yeah, it really learned, I learned how to deal with people. I learned how to accept people for who they were. Because I have a high standard and I, you can disappoint yourself if you walk through life with a really high standard. And so it allowed me to really help understand people's point of views. And that's made me successful not only as a salesman, but it's helped as a leader. How would you go from being a producer to being in management? They pestered me. <laughs> <laughs> they asked me. I had been teaching Dale Carnegie. I was you know, 30 years old. And so they looked at someone. I was successful as an advisor. And they, you know, they asked me to consider it. And so I did. John, there had always been a tradition at Merrill Lynch many cases, the CEO of Merrill Lynch came from the ranks of the producers. Talk about how important it is for management to understand what it's like to be a producer and what that's all about. Well, the wealth management business is a, is a little bit different and it's funny in that way. And I don't think there's any substitute for the empathy that you have to learn to have for clients. You have to understand that your recommendations don't always work out. You have to live with that. Yep. That's a very you know, real feeling that I think um, having, if you didn't experience, I think it would be harder to understand the, what the advisors actually do for their clients. But I want to talk about your firm's culture and the behavior that you've tried to instill in the organization. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Our values have been clear since Charlie Merrill um, 
you know, sort of came back to the organization in 1994 and declared that the customer's interest must come first. And we've really lived to that. We're trying to operationalize that idea. It's why we've been in, in support of a harmonious standard of care for the industry. And so what we really want, we want to embody that. We want to build it out. We want to demonstrate it to clients. And so, so is there a lot of internal training and messaging lot. that goes on for this? There is a lot of that. And then there's, there's obviously building the capability set, leveraging technology to make it efficient and using technology to, to create capacity. It's been talked about in the media. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to it directly. Um, there's been some comments about your belief that a good advisor is a, is a whole advisor. So listen, I may be older than you two, but at some point in your life you start to think about longevity and you start thinking about wellness. I have a job that requires a lot of me and as a result of that, I need energy. So it's, it's really common sense. Um, if you think, if you believe in employee engagement and you believe in having a place that people want to work, um, caring about them is a good place to start. Yeah. And being well is a way to demonstrate that. So what does that mean? That means that the way you work is important. You know, science shows you cannot go at something 14 hours a day and be productive. So you've got to take breaks and you've got to, you know, you've got to make sure that, that you're, you refresh. Right. Two, food is energy. It's like putting gasoline in your car. Yeah. And you want to put the best energy into your body. So you want to think about... Right. So you're not mandating people have to eat certain things or do certain uh, athletic activities. What are you looking for Just a job? You're going to quit the Doritos? You're looking for a job? Well, first of all, you should I quit eat, the first, Doritos. Of, first, first of all, I don't eat Doritos. And I do, you know, I'm doing hot yoga now for 90 minutes. Anyway. So two issues that the industry is facing is the age, the average age of the FA continues to creep up every year. Um, so I want to know what your thoughts are about that, why it's happening, what the solution is. And I also want to talk about the robo-advisor movement, um, how Merrill Lynch is thinking about it as, as a competition, sure. and how you think about that in terms of the overall industry. Let's look at the demographics first. Yeah. So advisors are getting older, and why is that happening? Well, I guess because it's a great business that you actually get better and better at through time and experience. And so it's a job that, you know, if you keep your mental faculties, you can do physically for a long time. So we have a lot of advisors who are really, are in their 60s, who really have a lot of wisdom from their experience and they want to stay involved in their practices and it is their practice. And so we see a lot of people extending. Does Merrill Lynch have a mandatory retirement age? We don't, no. We have advisors who are in their 80s. Still right, so as, as, as long as the advisors are servicing their clients, and you see the, the data which shows our average age of an FA is going up every year, you're okay with that because it's about the clients and about what the advisors are doing. I'm not okay with it in a vacuum because right. what happens is those clients who are sitting there looking at their advisor age along with them are wondering the question, when are you going to call it right, quits? So what's the solution? Pairing up, pairing up advisors into yeah, teams? Yeah, so we're building teams, but uh, what we're, instead of just pairing them up with a 50-year-old, uh, what we're really trying to do is focus on our development program. Yeah. We want to hire, train, and develop younger people. You've got a generational opportunity with the kids of our clients. You know, millennials have told us, listen, I'll go to my parents and ask for advice. I'll even consider the advisor if they treat me as my own self, as an individual, and without my parents' agenda. And that's a good way to transition to the robo-advisors. They're targeting, the robo-advisors are specifically targeting your client's children who are utilizing things like Uber and Airbnb, and they're saying, why not do the same thing in financial services? And you're saying? I'm saying I love the idea that automating investment advice 
can add capacity to our advisors' practices. And if the algorithms can do something that a lot of people can't do, which is avoid the behavioral traps of investing, right. buying high and selling low, not rebalancing when it calls for rebalancing, then it plays a very important role. So we actually embrace the idea that technology can enhance our offering to our clients. What adjustments have to be made in this low rate environment, John, to generate real returns right now? What are, what are you guys suggesting to people? Change your expectations. <laughs> like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Wall Street Week is sponsored in part by Hightower, an unobstructed view. Imagine a business built on the premise that delivering straightforward financial advice is the right thing to do. A firm that places investor trust at its foundation, rising above the discord of an industry compromised by conflicts of interest. Hightower is the new blueprint for financial advice. We live by the fiduciary standard, a legal pledge to put our clients' interests first. Not because fiduciary is the latest fad, but because it's what we were built to do. I used to dread getting up and going to work. I was done with the corporate grind. I was tired of being a starving artist. And I started looking around for a business that I believed in, and I kind of wanted to do something a little more green. My score mentor helped me take the first step. He helped me create a business plan and helped me implement it. They've really taught me how to think big. SCORE helped me to make the unimaginable possible all for free. I'm here because of SCORE. I'm here because of SCORE. Get your free business mentor at SCORE.org. John, one of the things that you have to be worried about with retail clients is the difference between bonds and bond funds. Uh, any thoughts in terms of what people should think about the bond funds they own as opposed to bonds? in a rising interest rate environment. Well, obviously, if you're in a fund, I think you'd want to look at, at similar periods of rising rates and see how that manager performed. If you want to ensure yourself that, you know, that you're not going to have to exit at a point where it's, it's dangerous for you potentially, that's really where you know, a, a portfolio of individual securities probably makes more sense. You get permanence and definition. With a bond, you can hold it to maturity. Right. And if that's what you really need to fund your lifestyle, then I think that's probably the better approach. Right, and again, holding a bond to maturity, I think, Anthony, you should probably explain to the viewers, because this is something that I think a lot of people are going to worry about. If you buy a bond at par, which is, say, 100, and you earn interest rate of X over a period of time, when the bond matures, let's say, it's in five years, you get the $100 back. So you made the interest plus the $100 back. If you go to sell that bond, prior to its maturity, it really depends on where interest rates are in terms of the price that you actually get for the bond. So for example, if rates have gone up, that, that bond price will actually trade at a lower level. And since rates have gone down, a lot of these bonds have actually traded at premiums right. uh, because of where current rates right, are. And most of the so, bonds that were purchased in the last eight years have been at premiums. And so you'll get back less than the principal, but hopefully the long-term thinking of what you bought for that, what you paid for that bond has been factored in, whereas and a bond fund, there is no terminal maturity. I think that's maturity. been the, the critical element to the success of your business model, that you've gone out into the marketplace yep. and you've explained to a lot of people that are super focused on their careers uh, what they need to be focused on in the world of investing. Yeah. And so I want to I ask a question about alternatives, mm -hmm. hedge funds, private equity, and things like that. How do they fit into the portfolio recommendations for your clients in this type of a market? So I'll, let's take them separately because I think they have different jobs to do in the portfolio. So let's take hedge funds. I mean, typically you see the name. A hedge fund hopefully will look to lower the volatility of the overall portfolio by really producing 
non-correlated returns or returns that don't move in the same direction as the stock or the bond moves. And that's really value to our clients because if anything, folks really struggle with volatility. And if that hedge fund can play that role, that's an important okay, role. Okay, so, so the goal, that your FA is telling a client, you want to use hedge funds in your portfolio to sort of lower the volatility, but still help you reach your actuarial goals, your long-term, uh, whatever your uh, income return is. Right, we still expect a return, we just expect it to, to um, perform differently in different periods of stress. Okay, so how does private equity fit in? Well, private equity to me is equity. And so what you're really doing is allowing uh, a longer cycle, investment cycle time, you're allowing the management team of these private companies a little bit longer ter uh, term, sort of less um, quarter to quarter focus on their performance and allow them to really do what they need to do to, to build a business. What adjustments have to be made in this low rate environment, John, to generate real returns right now? What are, what are you guys suggesting to people? Change your expectations. <laughs> yeah, well, we had that conversation once. So what do you, what do you, what do you say to What we're saying is that we, uh, we'll be able to, uh, our job is to help deliver you the returns of the financial markets provide. If they don't provide adequate returns, then we've got to think about something else. We've got to save more. Uh, we've got to think about extending your work life. You've got to think potentially about a second act in retirement. But the key to all of it is we want to be really transparent on the progress that you're making towards that retirement goal in this case. See, Gary, I think this is a great message. It's about expectation management and dealing with the reality of the world the way it is. Now, how important is it to eat your own cooking? Because I've heard you talk about yeah. this. And so uh, tell, tell our clients. Meaning, uh, meaning, meaning that advisors are invested in the same yeah. things that their clients are. Correct. Well, and it goes beyond investing. It's our process. So I, I, I consume our process from beginning to end. So I want to make sure that I know whether my goals are funded or not. And I want to use the, the capabilities of the organization. And so my advisor um, uh, invests along, he, he has, a, I have his equity portfolio uh, and obviously a few other separate accounts in that way. But I've absolutely 100% of my money's at Merrill Lynch, maybe that's obvious, but it's the way I engage. And I engage as a client, not the leader of this business. Hi, I'm Ken Lango. I'm Carl Icahn. I'm Ben Bernanke. Barry Rosenstein. Larry Summers. Jeffrey Gunlock. Dick Grasso. Lizanne Saunders. David Rubenstein. Andre Agassi. Jeff Smith. Lee Cooperman. I'm Dave Petraeus. Don Drabkin. Jim Chados. Byron Wing. I'm watching Wall Street Week. I'm watching Wall Street Week. I watch Wall Street Week. I watch Wall Street Week. I'm watching Wall Street Week. I was a guest on the original Wall Street Week. I was on the old Wall Street Week. And I'm pleased to be on the brand new Wall Street Week. And I hope you are too. And you should too. I'm sure you will too. Sign up for the free Wall Street Week newsletter, where we recap each week in the financial markets and dive deeper into Wall Street Week's most recent episode with feature articles and investment primers. Go to WallStreetWeek.com and sign up today. Wall Street Week is sponsored in part by Coke Industries. We are Coke. From fuel to durable tires to the blacktop itself, we help make it all better. So if life is really all about the journey, hey, let's ride. We are Coke. Checking your fantasy league? Nah, just my 401k statement. Mm, nice. Where'd you find the money for that? I've just been saving a little every month. <laughs> I can't seem to save anything. Well, what about all this? What about the money you're spending? <laughs> what money? It's gone before I can get my hands on it. I got a pizza for a Todd. Hey, can somebody spot me? When it comes to financial stability, don't get left behind. It's 547. Get tools and tips for saving at feedthepig.org. 
Dear fashionistas, athletes, ballerinas, and first responders, we're honored that our fibers have your backs and arms and legs, heels and toes. We are Coke. We're back with John Thiel, also joining us, Robert Seachin, Managing Director at UBS, and Jonathan Hurdle, CEO of Hurdle Callahan. Let's start with you, John. Uh, you have basically pioneered the concept of the outsourced CIO, that being Chief Investment Officer. Tell us a little about Hurdle Callahan. Well, we've been in business 27 years, uh, 26 billion under discretion, and we manage clients in 46 states, everywhere in the Chief Investment Officer role. So we're managing with families, endowments, foundations, and pension funds really nationwide, across all asset classes globally. So, so a client walks into your shop and says, you'll do the soup, the nuts investing for you. Right, so we're really talking, we really copy ourselves after the leading chief investment officers in the world. All right, so Robert, where are we right now? Talk to us a little bit about where you think the world is in 2016. We remain constructive, uh, constructive on risk assets. We think there's a lot of reason to stay constructive on, on risk assets. I think we're at an inflection point though where the Fed had decided higher rates. And as such, we want to be more selective in how we identify and implement um, investments for clients. Where more risk comes in is what are the derivative effects of rising rates, right? And if you remember, QE and zero rates were all about taking vol out of the market. Now we're going to introduce vol back into the market. And if you see some price action that's incredibly negative, whether it be in emerging markets because of the obvious implications of higher rates for emerging markets, in the Fed's mandate or expanded mandate of global conditions and what's happening there, I think what you're going to see is the, the, the possibility that that spills over into the real economy in business confidence, investor confidence, consumer confidence, lending, and ultimately could have an impact on our economic trajectory. Rob, you, you mentioned something about QE was an attempt to take volatility out of the market. Let's explain that to viewers. The idea was the quantitative easing programs were going to inflate asset prices, making things one directional. Mm -hmm. That was your point. Mm -hmm. With QE gone and interest rates going up, the expectation of more volatility in the stock market. First of all, why do I care so much about volatility? What is volatility? Why am I afraid of volatility in money? You shouldn't asset? be. Right. It's an opportunity to buy right. accelerated So if purchases. I know what my rank order of opportunities are, I like U.S. equities better than bonds. I like non-U.S. equities, meaning developed markets slightly better. I mm -hmm. like emerging markets even better. So now I've got to get the money to work. So volatility is now my friend. As a result of volatility, there's value stories that have emerged in a couple different places. Uh, where's the value? One, be, one being energy. Right. I think a value story. We, we've gone from a secular growth story in energy to a value story right. today. Very and, quickly, too. And very quickly. And what's different is some of the fundamentals are changing. We were you know, 2 million barrels oversupplied today. Now we're 1 million barrels oversupplied. So the delta is positive. In emerging markets, I think what's interesting is John's absolutely right. If you look at the price to book of the MSCI emerging markets, it's 1.4 times. That's 2008 levels, well so, below so historical the, the levels. The MSCI, just for the benefit, is the composite of the global stock index. Global uh, emerging market so It's a Morgan Stanley emerging market index. You agree with Robert Seachin here, John? I don't. All right, tell me why. So we're a little bit concerned about emerging markets. Uh, China, we think, is moving to a consumption economy, and that transition's taking place. We're not so sure about the other emerging markets. Is 2016 going to be the year where those that are just indexing are going to be 
the, the relative performance is going to be very uh, subpar to, as opposed to active management. Well, I look at the marketplace today and there's a huge dispersion in valuation. If you look at the 4.5% real yield of the S&P 500, it ranges from 2 to 10. So, so your answer is active, your 2016 my, is a, active management should outperform index. Right. Now, John, so within Merrill Lynch, you've got advisors who utilize both strategies. That's right. And you've got clients who knowingly know what they're going to get with an index fund, but they still want it. So how do you answer that? Well, I would depend on which, which uh, styles and style yeah. within the equity markets and fixed income markets you want, right? Is it, is it easier to index and just pay for beta? For large cap, it might be. And even though there are uh, managers who've outperformed, you've got to get access to them. You've got to be able to find them. And that's probably easier for John than it is for most people. Let's talk about the election and the impact on uh, Wall Street. The United States is so powerful that we're going to power through this no matter who's getting elected. Thinking of investing in Apple, Google, or Microsoft? They're all components of XLK, the technology sector spider ETF, which includes over 60 other technology stocks in the S&P 500 to help you add diversification and minimize single stock risk. Why pick a single technology stock when you can own the entire technology sector of the S&P 500? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Go to sectorspiders.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. Visit us on the web at sectorspiders.com. Life's taught me a lot, and I'm ready for more. Well, you're not the typical kind of candidate that I hire, but you are exactly what I'm looking for. Your company could be missing out on the candidates it needs most. Learn how to find a great pool of untapped talent at gradsoflife.org. You can join millions of Americans turning off the old media for Newsmax TV. We're in over 40 million homes on DirecTV Channel 349, Dish Channel 223, and Verizon Fios Channel 115. And we're available online at NewsmaxTV.com or on Roku and Google TV. Plus, you can watch us anywhere in the world. Just download our free Newsmax TV app from your iPhone or Android. Do it today and find out why millions are tuning in Newsmax TV. For real news, better talk. Wall Street Week is sponsored in part by Morgan Stanley, where capital creates change. Let's talk about how we would rate the health of the U.S. economy, and we'll take it down the line again. I think it's solid. I just don't think people are used to slow and steady. And I think it's actually very healthy for our country. And you think about the 50s and the 60s and times when it was there was a lot of prosperity. Okay, so, so but there is a theory that we've had seven years now of expansion, uh, and typically that's what our economy goes through cyclically, and so you're saying that it's more like silly putty, the expansion will last longer. Is yeah, that fair? I think it will, yep. What do you think, Rob? I, I completely agree with that. I think um, real economic growth is tremendous in the U.S. right now. Look at what um, lower energy costs and uh, technology advances you mentioned earlier in the show, Uber, Airbnb are doing. They're putting money in consumers' pockets. Those consumers are spending. Look at what airlines are doing right now. Look at professional services like health clubs. Look at car sales. Our economy is on a self-sustainable trajectory that's really powerful. Partly well, fueled you know, this, by this the energy This plays prices, into summary, right? Larry Summers' narrative about parts of the service economy like Uber and the services coming off of Google are not measured by the GDP. Correct. What's your opinion, John? I'm more in the slow and steady camp, but I really don't care about economic activity as much as I care about going in price. So the, the whole notion of going in price is the driving factor. Anything you're worried about in 2016? Well, we're always worried. Um, but I would actually worry in our world because we are price driven. We're always valuation. We worry about downside first that the real risk, in my opinion, is a bubble in the equity market. Because what happens is, 
every bubble starts with logic. So, for example, the dot-com bubble. Internet's going to change the world. Cell phone, everybody's going to have a cell phone that's going to change the world. All true. Absolutely true. So that logic keeps going higher and higher and higher until it's ridiculous and it's a bubble. Well, what's logic today? The United States is the best place in the world to do business. It's safe. So on and so forth. We've got stronger transparency, dollar. stronger dollar. Right. Another way to phrase this would be the trade is crowded in the sense that you have so much investment money chasing the same investment theme. Right. But and you know, there's no signs of an overheated market right now. You know, if you look at the right. you know, retail enthusiasm and so forth, it's not there yet. John, you look across Merrill Lynch, uh, you have a good snapshot of what retail investors in general are doing. When you look at 2000 and you look at 2007, my guess is you're not seeing any kind of activity or behavior that would say that you have to be worried about that. No. Uh, I think a lot of people, that 08 for sure is still fresh in people's mind. Right. So you're not seeing that. You're not but seeing the, the, the excessive taking on margin, the, no. the excessive taking of margin to buy speculative securities. Margin is being utilized uh, our today. Our margin book hasn't moved. Yeah. yeah. So when you think about this, so the that's long a positive then, yeah. right? Let's yeah. see. Yeah. Yeah. Positive for the U.S. equity market. Right? Yes. Yeah. yes. But yeah. the long term yeah. return, ye real yield of the U.S. equity market is six or six and a half percent. Right. Today it's four and four and a half percent. The only reason it's attractive is because the real return on bonds is zero. And by the way, you bring up that long-term return, and this is the program of, of long-term long -term investing. Half of that return is dividends and distributions Absolutely. reinvested. is isn't even capital gains. Right. You mentioned your order of preference in asset. How are you thinking about fixed income today within the context of client portfolios? More cash than ever before. Mm -hmm. Very hard to find bonds we like. And you have to think about cash as uh, the option value of cash. And it's a tremendous stabilizer in the portfolio. So there are very few bonds that aren't overpriced. We just started to nibble a little bit in master limited partnerships again because of the oil patch. So midstream MLPs. But that's a yield vehicle. Most yield vehicles that haven't been damaged by dislocation mm -hmm. are dramatically overpriced. People have been chasing yield. So that's risky. We don't, the stability that you're buying with a yielding instrument has a price associated with it. Today you're paying a terrible price for the stability of yield. And you got to be careful what you buy. So minimum on, it, on fixed income, very careful where you go. Mm -hmm. Got to be very niche. I want to switch the conversation to the election. Let's talk about the election and the impact on uh, Wall Street. I, that's not a crystal ball I can see through. So I don't, I don't you know, that point of view is going to evolve, I think. Um, clearly there's taxes are on the agenda. I think it's an opportunity for us, corporate and individual, to rethink something more simple. So I think that's got an opportunity, and then we'll see how everything that's been you know, accomplished over the last eight years by the Obama administration, depending on who wins, what, you know, what will be addressed and what won't. All right, so it's up in the air. What do you think? What think's going to happen? I think one thing that clear, is clear is change is coming. If a tweet can take an entire sector down the way it did and create okay, so opportunities. So you're referring to the tweet that uh, candidate and secretary Hillary Clinton made about the pharmaceutical industry and pharmaceutical pricing, and it caused a gigantic dislocation. What do you think? I hate to say this, but I don't think it matters. And what I think about it is that the United States is so powerful that we're going to power through this no matter who's getting elected. I think we have lots of candidates on the Republican side who are qualified. And, um, you know, I think we will survive a Clinton candidate, a presidency, fine, if that happens. I think there's something going on in the world that people haven't grasped yet. And this notion of globalization is so powerful in the information age that we are going to succeed in spite of the government. Now, we can, we can succeed more or less based on less government would help us more, succeed more. 
But regardless of what happens, we're going to succeed, and this rank order of cash flow is the dominant factor. We want to thank John Thiel, Rob Seachin, and John Hurdle for spending time today with Wall Street Week. That's it for today. You can check in with us all week at WallStreetWeek.com. Until next Sunday, have a prosperous week. The preceding program was paid for and presented by Skybridge Media, LLC.